Hello, welcome, and thanks for checking in today to No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer. I'm an Airbnb ambassador and 17-time super host, and I've hosted over 1,000 reservations. I'm a stay-at-home mom of two and manage my eight listings remotely. My mission is to help new and experienced vacation rental hosts turn their listings into fully booked, profitable properties that can be managed from anywhere, so you too can have no vacancies. If that sounds good to you, let's get right into the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer, and today we have on Grace and Amelia from the Women Invest in Real Estate podcast. These two are investing like crazy. I listen to their podcast religiously. You guys know I come from a short-term rental background, but they are invested in long-term, I think midterms, multifamily, anything any sort of deal, you name it, these two seem to be doing it. And they just recently had an episode on their podcast about how to form a buy box. I had never heard of this concept as an investor. And it resonated with me so much. I immediately reached out to them and asked if they could come on and kind of rehash that episode and maybe go a little bit more in depth here today. So Grace and Amelia, first of all, before we get into our topic, welcome. And do you guys want to introduce yourself a little bit and go through your story and how you started your own podcast? Yeah, absolutely. I always take the reins on this because Wire started because I slid into Amelia's DMs. When I first started investing, I didn't know anybody. And I saw Amelia on Instagram talking about real estate in Iowa, which is the state we're both from and invest in. So we started doing a meetup. It turned into many other things such as retreat, podcasts, all that good stuff. And yeah, I do a lot of single family, small multi, midterms. You hit the nail on the head. But yeah, Amelia does a lot of those similar things. So yeah, so I'm Amelia. This is my voice in case you want to (laughs) discern between the two of us. But yeah, Grace and I are both based out of Iowa. Like she said, we focus heavily on midterm rentals. That's our favorite strategy. But we also have lots of long-term rentals. We do flips, et cetera. So we're really excited to be on this podcast. So thank you for having us. And I have to ask, how old are you guys? I'm 31. I'm the old lady of the crew. I'm 25. You guys are so inspirational. Like literally when I listen to your podcast, it seems like a different language. And my background is mostly co-hosting. And I feel like I'm just starting to learn the investor side of things. And you guys like blow me away. I'm so inspired by you both. So thank you for being here. Okay, let's go into what a buy box is. You guys talked about this on your own podcast. And I just love this concept. There was specifically a line in your show where you said a buy box, and we'll get into the definitions and everything. But you specifically said a buy box is supposed to help you say no to certain properties. And more importantly, it's supposed to help you say yes when you find the right deal. And that just hit me so hard because recently I've come across certain deals. And even when I know they're good, I feel like I'm scared to pull the trigger. Like I don't have my criteria this well laid out and formed like you guys seem to. And it's making me scared to take take the plunge on certain things. So can you define what a buy box is for us? And let's kind of go into the criteria for this. Yeah. So to put it very simply, a buy box is basically all of the criteria that you're looking for in a property 
put together in one nice compact little compartment so that when you're looking for deals, you can be like, okay, I'm looking for a property that is in this price range, that cash flows this amount, that's in this type of neighborhood class, etc. Those are just a couple things that go into a buy box. But it lines it all up. So then when you do find a deal, you're ready to make the leap and move forward. So you're not like Natalie and stuck in that analysis paralysis Mm -hmm. phase. It forces you, if you're really truly serious about investing, it forces you to move forward with deals if they meet your criteria. Grace, what, what did I leave out? No, I was going to say, like you said, Natalie, it helps with the analysis paralysis, but it also helps the shiny object syndrome because those are both of like Amelia and I joke, those are the real estate diseases, but they're on opposite spectrums. One, you want to do everything. Yeah. And the other is you don't want to do anything. And so like Amelia said, it tells you, yes, this hit your criteria, do it. Or no, that's not what we're supposed to be focusing on. You need to leave that and move on. Oh, that's spot on. Yeah, it's the mix between the it's like finding the balance between the analysis paralysis and shiny object syndrome, because I've been saying for the longest time, I do not want to invest in California anymore. And that's where I'm based. And there's so much regulation here. And I'm just like ready to go out of state. And then there was an amazing property I saw in Palm Springs, and I was like ready to do it. And the numbers made sense, but there was just something holding me back. And it was like, you know, I just felt so conflicted. Like I can see this is a good deal. But this isn't what I've been saying I wanted to do. Like, where do I go from here? And so, yeah, I think you just have to get very laser focused in so you can both say no and say yes. Can we run through the criteria that you put in your buy box and how if we could honestly go like point by point, like what you put in each one and how you decide, you know, how you personally decide what works for you in your buy box? Yeah. First things first is it doesn't have to be all pretty when you start. You can add to your buy box as you keep going. And Amelia and I both started investing and we didn't know what a buy box was, but we kind of got the gist of it, but we got a lot better. So the first thing, of course, is going to be your market. What market are you in? Second, I'll focus on like the top five things, knowing that you can add and subtract things out. But I would say it's market, it's price point. It is level of rehab. So are you willing to do rehab or do you want turnkey? If it's multifamily, are you looking for value adds through mismanagement or through under market rent, whatever? It's the asset class, obviously, a house, a duplex, a multifamily, a piece of land. And then it's going to be what are your metrics that tell you it's a good deal? So I know Amelia, you're really good about being spot on with your cash on cash. Maybe you want to share about what you use for your metrics in your deals. Yeah, but I think we can go back and start from number one and we can kind of just like walk through. So if you're like a new beginner listener and you're like, okay, what should I look for in a market? Well, that all really depends on, you know, a couple of different factors. And I think first off too is just knowing what your why is and investing in real estate because all of that goes into creating this buy box. If you're somebody that doesn't have a lot of time on your hands, but wants to put your money to work, your buy box is probably going to look different than somebody that doesn't have a lot of money, but has a lot of time and is maybe like looking to quit their W-2 job or something like that. They're probably going to be looking more for really high cash flow, high cash on cash return, et cetera. So all of that is going to go into the buy box as well. But as far as the market goes, there's a couple things that we like to look for. One of them is like obviously job growth. 
is this a dying town or is this a prospering town? And there's lots of different websites online that you can go to look for that. Um, Another thing we like to see is, is the market rent in the area high or is it significantly lower than if you just bought a house? Obviously, you want market rents in the area to be on the higher end, right? Unless you're looking for a short term rental and then you've got to take that into account too, right? And you can use AirDNA and things like that to account for. I just was going to ask with the job growth factor specifically, I know, I don't think you guys have any short-term rental deals. Am I? I have one. You have one. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, do you think that is an important metric that would translate to STR investors? Because I'm thinking like national parks are a huge draw for short-term rentals and they don't always have the job growth. So is that something you found for midterm rentals works really well? Or is that like across the board that's a good metric to that's go actually a really great question i would say that pertains more towards long term and midterm okay e- exactly this is different so if you're looking for a short-term rental you're going to be looking for things like what are the attractions in the area what is it a very seasonal market or does it have traffic year-round things like that so and also when you think about a market, think about where do you have a competitive advantage? So do you have family in a certain area that could be your boots on the ground? Or is your local area a good place that you could invest in and get started? Natalie, you're in California. It's super expensive there. You're probably (laughs) looking to invest out of state. So maybe you have a competitive advantage somewhere else. So think about those kind of things as well. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And then I'm curious too, just from your guys' goals, and I know we're different. I'm more on the short-term rental side. You guys do long-term and midterm, but is there something you found like, do you like urban markets or suburban areas more? I'm just like kind of curious for your own preferences, what you like. I would say for me, all of my properties, all 20 units are within a 15 minute drive. So my buy box Mm. is super laser focused on Cedar Rapids, Iowa. So I have a very clear cut area that I invest in. And when I picked that market, it never occurred to me to pick a different market because that was my backyard. Okay. So that's my answer. Okay. I would say that I focus more on urban markets. I do have, I also have a portfolio in a very small town, so it can work there as well. But moving forward, when I'm building my portfolio, I'm definitely looking at more like population dense areas. Okay. There was something else you guys said in your own episode too. You said there are millionaires in every single market. And that was another one that I don't know, I think coming from California, like we're like privileged with a lot of like LA, San Diego, like big cities that I feel like people do think like I have to stay in these really popular towns. And it's so true. I've met people at other conferences and stuff who come from random towns I've never, ever heard of. And they're just absolutely crushing it. And it's just really a matter of finding the right properties within the market. So yeah, I think you're spot on like the competitive advantage. You can don't feel like you have to go somewhere to like Nashville or these like big, huge cities people have heard of. There's millionaires in every single market. You nailed it. Yeah, don't get stuck on the glamour of what everybody else is doing. Mm -hmm. Maybe you went to college somewhere, so you know the town really well. Or your friend has their own contracting business. Or your other friend's a realtor. Just go where you're able to get started and make sense. Make an educated decision and get started because that's the most important thing. And like you said, like we always say, people kill it in every market. So if you're going to take two years to decide a market, you could have spent two years investing. So Mm -hmm. just pick. Love it. 
Okay. So the next one is your buying power. So purchase price. And I think this is really big and it's sometimes a step that I see new investors skip is they're like looking at properties and they have no idea what they're even pre-approved for yet. So yep. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, hold on here. How are we, what are we doing? So <laughs> I think that's really important and it's not super scary to go to a lender. We always recommend like small local banks and credit unions, but go to the bank and ask to speak their lending department and they'll ask you all the questions that they need to know and kind of set you towards a path of knowing what kind of buying power you have. Yeah, this is a huge one. I've heard a lot of people who thought they had to have the property in mind and then go to the lender and see if they are qualified. And I think a lot of people who have never invested before feel like I, I can't go to a lender. I'm not ready. I don't know what we're looking at. They are going to tell you they're going to help you narrow it down and guide it for you. So just go to them, make that your very first step and figure out the budget you're working with. And the price is also such an easy thing to filter so that's why you also want to have that there because a lot of times realtors will set you up on a search. The first thing they're going to ask is what's your price range. So any of those like solid metrics you can add to your buy box are going to help you filter out all the noise so much easier. I think too, your lender is also going to help you figure out if you can get a deal with like 3% down or if you have to do 10% or 20. And so really that is the first conversation you need to have. You might think that you've got $80,000 saved up, ready to deploy for a deal, but you don't even know how much money is going to go to the down payment, closing costs, what's there for the rehab, what you want as an emergency fund while you set the place up. So you have to have that conversation first. Yeah. And this is shocking to me. And since this is a short-term rental podcast, I want to talk about it. A lot of people don't realize that you can put 10% down on a vacation home loan. Like if you own a primary or I don't know all the requirements, but I talk to people that are investors that like have a decent amount of properties that still don't know that. So I'm like, wait a minute, hold on here. Like yeah. if you live a certain distance away, et cetera, et cetera, and you plan on using the property a certain amount of days per year yourself, you can qualify for that 10% down. So that just blows my mind. So if you're thinking about buying a short-term rental property, maybe talk to a lender about that option. Yeah. And I don't think the requirements are that crazy. It's like you have to, it has to be more than 50 miles from your house and any future investment properties would have to be another 50 miles from that one. I think that's pretty much all there is to it. Talk to a lender again. We're not yeah. professionals with that, but yeah, there's a lot, there's so many programs out there to help with different types of funding and stuff. So you just, you need to start with that conversation and narrow down your budget. And one other thing I want to mention is you don't have to know everything when you're investing in real estate. Like I think so many people are worried to look like a fool or worried to look like they don't know it all. But I rely so heavily on the people on my team to tell me what I need to do. Like my lender, I rely on them so much to like help me through that process. I don't need to know everything about lending. My attorney who does all my closings and schedules all of that stuff, like I don't know how to walk through a closing process. I ask questions all the time and I've purchased quite a few deals at this point and they still help me along the way. So don't feel stupid asking questions. That's why you're paying these people to help you. Yeah, that's such a good point. <laughs> Let them do their job and like walk you through. You wouldn't expect... I don't know, you know, your lender to come in and tell you how you're going to manage your midterm rental, like let them do their part and let you like stick in your zone of genius. 
Mm-hmm. And that's how you learn. Nobody is born knowing how to buy a house. Nobody knows what an abstract is until they buy a house. And I don't learn. know what that is. And it's okay. <laughs> that's okay. An abstract? What is that? They might not even call it that in California, to be honest. Yeah, they could call it something else. It's basically the super long history of your house. Oh. And it's like a really big document. And it's like the final say of what's all happened to your house and it like gets that'll tell you like, people who have like died in your yep. property and all that stuff Ooh. It, like who's, who's, owned, who's it? owned it over the yeah, course of however long that parcel has basically been in, like incorporated yeah yep. like well, the there parcel you go. number the lot dimensions the city regulations on it i've never even looked at one i just know <laughs> i have to find it every time i buy a house because it has to get updated but anyways you would learn that like i didn't know that until somebody's like where's your abstract i'm like well what the heck is that <laughs> I don't there know. You go. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, people will tell you what you need to find and then it just becomes routine after that. And yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Okay, cool. So that's numbers. Amelia, for you, I know you're huge on cash on cash. So for you, you're looking at getting a certain, making a certain percentage back from your monthly payments. Is that what you're focused on? Yeah. So cash on cash return is basically just a calculation of how much money you make on the property per year divided by the total amount of cash that you have invested in the property. And the number that I look for here is 15% to 20%. So it's going to basically take me anywhere from like five to six years to make my initial cash investment back. And I kind of like to compare that number to the stock market, which is not like a perfect comparison, but Basically, if I have money in the stock market and it's making me like 15% per year, like I'm pretty darn happy with that. So, you know, if it's making 10% a year, happy with that. But anything lower than 10%, I'm probably not going to invest my money there. I'm going to look for somewhere else. So that's how I like to think about it. Okay, got it. And there's a lot of other metrics you can add to your buy box. It doesn't have to be cash on cash. It could be cash flow. It could be if you're flipping, people use more of return on investment, just some type of number that allows you to definitively say whether it's a good deal. Because what a quote good deal to one person is completely different to the next. So you need to have some sort of metric that tells you yes or no. Yeah, a huge one for me right now is honestly appreciation. I still would love to have some cash flow, but I'm kind of okay sacrificing that for like markets where I know they're gonna like they have a huge trajectory in 30 years, like I'd be sitting on a massive appreciation gain. Like that's a big one for me. Is that something you guys factor in at all? Or are you mostly focused on cash flow at the moment? Well, we're in Iowa. <laughs> so mostly cash flow. Gotcha. Okay. But I love that you're focused on appreciation. And I actually feel like the more and more I learn about real estate investing, the more I'm wow, that's so it's so powerful because here I am making a measly three hundred dollars per month cash flow on this property in Iowa that doesn't have a very high appreciation. And then there's people out in let's say California who are making zero, their, their cash flow zero, but they're pay, you know, it's covering all their bills. But in 10, 15, 20 years, that property has appreciated 500, 600,000. Yeah. So who really cares that you're not cash flowing every month when you're building all this equity and all this mm-hmm. appreciation? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really just a personal, that's just a goal you have to set individually. No one can tell you what, you know, what's going to matter more to you right now. 
And that goes back to your why, which Amelia said in the beginning, because if you're trying to quit your job now, like yesterday, you're not going to give a crap about appreciation because you need cash flow today. Yep. If you have a fantastic job that you love and you're really looking to build that retirement nest egg, or maybe you've got young kids and this is to get them to through college in 20 years, then you maybe don't care about cash flow. You're like, I want the high appreciation area. Mm-hmm. So again, so many people are like, well, what should I look for? I'm like, I don't know. I'm not you. What yeah. <laughs> do you want? What are you looking for in your life? So and when it comes to your why, it's understanding what is it that you're looking for out of real estate? Because another thing Amelia and I always say is real estate is a means. I don't wake up and do real estate every day because I freaking love real estate. I do it because <laughs> I love to do whatever I want. And so you have to know what are you using real estate for? What are your goals? And then use that as a basis for your entire buy box. Use that to build your buy box. Yeah. And there's so many goals. I know a lot of people who invest in short-term rentals specifically because they want those as their vacation homes. And so they're your first conversation should be, do we actually like this market? Would we visit this place? And then you can run the numbers from there. But yeah, there's a million different ways why somebody would get into this. So you have to be very crystal clear on your vision and what you want out of it. Yeah, absolutely. That is like the ultimate goal for me is to be able to <laughs> buy vacation rentals in places that I want to visit. I'm like, you don't just want to own in Iowa forever. You don't no. just want to have an Iowan empire. <laughs> no, I need a Colorado home, a nice. Maine home, Alaska. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got all the. Notice how she said need, not want. It's a need. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, love it. Let's move on to the third point in the buy box then. Yeah. So this is rehab level. Grace, I'll let you take this one. Yeah. This again, believe it or not, comes back to your why. Because if you have no time in your day, you're going to know that you maybe need to buy turnkey. That's going to be a non-negotiable. Or if you have no experience or if you have no patience to deal with contractors. Whereas for me, when I got started, I knew I was going to DIY, my partner and I, So I wanted a lot of rehab needed because that's how I was going to build my value because I had time, I had energy, I didn't have the money. So for me, that's what I had to do. I know Amelia started the same way. She did a lot of DIY to get started and your buy box, it's going to change slightly as you grow your portfolio. That's okay. It's going to adapt as you adapt your needs and your why. But when it comes to rehab, you really have got to know that. Because that's another no-brainer thing that you can use to filter things out. Like, okay, only turnkey, all these investor specials are not coming to your inbox or vice versa. Yeah, I don't have too much to add to that. I think that's where you kind of have to dig a little bit deeper in when you're thinking about your buy box and decide, do you really want the headache of dealing with a rehab or can you get away with buying a rent-ready property and paying a little bit more for it? Okay. Yeah, one one final tip I would say is if you don't want to do a ton of rehab, but you want to add a little bit of value, a great thing to look for is like a cosmetic update where you do, and we always say paint, flooring, and fixtures. Those are three things that are super easy to either hire, hire out or do yourself. 
Yeah, those cosmetic fixer uppers, I feel like, are like easy enough for anyone who's scrolled Pinterest and watch HGTV to get into. And you can kind of budget those costs a little better than a full on rehab. But yeah, I like how you tied this back into your why once again, because if you're in this for appreciation and you want to dedicate six months to full on rehabbing, that's the move. You can put so much new equity into the property, but. If you're that investor with a W-2 and you do not have time and this is just something as like a tax shelter, buy buy the turnkey place and just get it up and rolling. So yeah, this once again comes back to your why. All right, let's jump into the fourth point in your buy box. Yeah, so property class. And these are typically categorized in four different categories. We have A, B, C, and D class neighborhoods and properties. A is the best. That is your very nice neighborhoods. Probably not a lot of cash flow here. Probably some decent appreciation depending on where you're at. B class, a little bit less nice than A class. Probably going to cash flow a little bit better. C class, that's where a lot of your blue collar workers are probably going to live. And D class, you can think about those as kind of your not so safe neighborhoods that you probably wouldn't want to drive in and pick up collect rent in person. Not that you should be doing that anyways, but that's the way we kind of think about it. We actually did a whole episode on property class, so not to bore you here with it, but if you want to go check that out, you can check out our episode where we talk more in depth about that. Grace, Uh, what did I miss? Believe it or not, it all gets tied back to your why, (laughs) and it all has to do with cash flow versus appreciation and pricing, which are the other pieces of your buy box. So it comes back to figuring out what you want and sticking with it. I'd love to know for you guys, what class are you looking at? I think we're both B class investors, yeah. pretty class. much. We're pretty much B class. I have a property that's in a C class neighborhood, I would say. But another thing that goes into that is like, is the area being gentrified? Is it kind of an up and coming area that maybe is C class now, but has the opportunity to move into A or B? B, B or A. So yeah, we're both B class right now. Some C. Yeah. And that's typically like the theory is that a C class neighborhood is what people say when the hippies move in, that's when you know it's time to invest because it's going to go, it's going to get gentrified and C class is where the gentrification typically happens. Okay. Good to know. I'm curious, is this something that is like hard defined? Like if you tell a realtor, like I'm interested in B class, like Are these drawn up on a city map or is that just like (laughs) up to the realtor's discretion to be like, yeah, this I'd consider B class? That's such a hard question. It's not something you can Google. Some people, if they know the area really well, will be able to say, okay, this is the B class areas like Amelia and I know for our markets, but it is subjective. And Iowa's B class neighborhood is going to look so different from California's B class neighborhood. Sure. So sure. there's going to be a little bit of work to know, okay, when you say B class, what does that mean? But if you have an investor friendly agent and they know the market, they should know the gist of what you're, of the area you're targeting. Okay. Okay. That's actually a good, another good tip right there is, and we can end on this, but finding a realtor who knows how to work with a buy box. So Let's wrap up with our fifth point, and then I'd love to get your input on that as well. Yeah, so the fifth was that metric, that measurement factor. So whether that's cash flow, cash on cash, return on investment, some of that stuff is what's going to go into number five. And for me personally, I used to be like, just to share some of my portfolio, like a minimum of, let's say, $200 per door. 
that was kind of what I was looking for. But now as the market's kind of shifted and as I've grown as an investor, that cash flow per month is not nearly enough for me because if one thing goes wrong on that property, then I'm out for the whole year. Like say the HVAC goes out, my whole profit for the year is gone. Now I do think there's something to be said about just getting started and getting that first property, even if it does only cash flow $200 a door. But as you kind of evolve in your investing career, I think it's totally okay to shift your buy box around. And you and just to clarify, you're talking about long term, not short term. Right. And that's the other thing is like, if you really need to make a lot of money now, probably the short term rental strategy is going to be a lot better for you than long term because you're not going to make nearly as much. So Grace, what about you? What's your metric right now? I would say I look for 15% plus cash on cash, but if I'm doing a burr, I also at the same time am looking for that infinite cash on cash. Basically, I'm trying to be all in my purchase, my holding, and my rehab for less than what I can cash out refinance for. Okay. Mm -hmm. Got it. And one other random point I want to make is you can have two buy boxes. I don't recommend to get started with it, but I know Amelia does. I know I do. Like Natalie, you talked about being in California and and wanting to be investing elsewhere. You can totally have two buy boxes because the goal of the buy box at the end of the day is to package it up nice and pretty so you can share it with the world so that you can start getting sent deals, whether that's wholesalers, realtors, whatever. But it's totally okay to have two buy boxes, but I don't recommend to start with two. Okay, this is important because I was kind of thinking the buy box is like for my own clarity and my own sake, but you're actually sending your buy box out. You're posting it and saying, hey, everybody, this is what I'm looking for. Send me something that matches. I'm going to ask like, a, I don't know if this question will come off like shady in any way, but are you ever worried that people are going to be like, oh, Grace is killing it. I'm stealing her buy box. and like, <laughs> I'm going to give this to realtors too. No, I haven't thought about it like that because also at the end of the day, I feel like it's going to be different for everybody. And I know that I have the confidence and the connections to move quickly on something so that when something does meet my buy box, I'll get it. It's not going to go to that random person who's never mm-hmm. talked to that realtor or never spoken to that wholesaler. And okay just about the importance of the buy box. I shared once before I even knew what a buy box was just kind of a very light buy box in a Facebook group. And two days later I got under contract for an eight unit apartment and it was not even a good buy box. It only had like three bullet points. It said multifamily in a B class in the area value add. That was it. And I you got didn't it. Even put like pricing no, number, no of pricing, <laughs> nothing. It was a crappy buy box. And I still got the deal in my inbox. Somebody sent me that deal. So that just goes to show if you can share it and realtors like this, they want to know, they don't want to waste time sending you properties that don't work. They want to only send you things that you like and same with wholesalers and other people. Mm -hmm. I actually had the girl that does my social media graphic design create a cute little graphic that's got like all my buy box criteria that I have tagged on my Instagram or like pinned to the top. So if you want to go like look at that, you can definitely go look. But I've also done the same thing as Grace. Post that in local Facebook investor groups, share it with wholesalers, share it with realtors that you know in the area, other investors. Like your buy box is also for other people to see so they can bring you deals that match your criteria. And it shows confidence. It shows you're ready. It shows you're serious. Like it's got all the benefits. 
Yeah, I love that. I don't know why I was initially thinking like this is just kind of like my little like, I don't know if I'm going to put in a locket and like, just know like this is what I want. But I think, yeah, you're spot on. Like, I don't know the deals if I'm trying to invest in, you know, some state I haven't visited, but I have a family member and if they're not in real estate, they wouldn't know. So the whole point is to share it and put yourself out there with your specific criteria. Yep, absolutely. If you don't get like the cute social media graphic, what's the way to do it? Just literally post on a Facebook group in the area like this is what I'm looking for. Just the bullet points. How do you guys find realtors to work with? Do you have at this point like a go-to person in your market or I don't know, are you do you always get yourself represented as the seller as the buyer or are you usually trying to like just find the listing that meets your criteria and go straight to the realtor? Amelia and I play in a smaller of a market, so it's a lot easier to do off-market deals. So we do a ton of off-market deals, but I have gone through a couple of realtors and finally landed on a really great one who really knows the market, knows what I'm looking for, is investor savvy. And so it might take some trial and error, but when you find them and you need to communicate well with them, keep them. Yeah. I have used a multitude of different things, but I personally like to eliminate the middleman if I can. So if I'm the buyer and I'm looking at a property, a lot of times I'll just reach out to the seller's agent directly. And I was a dual representation state, so they can basically represent me and the seller. And that kind of just eliminates, you know, if I had a realtor that I brought into the mix, then they would have to do communicate back and forth with them. But I do have, if I do want to look at deals that maybe the listing agent isn't being like responsive, I have a specific realtor that I work with. And he was actually the listing agent of a previous deal that I purchased. So I liked his work. I liked what he did. So I just ended up sticking with him for those kind of deals. Gotcha. I like the idea a lot of the two different buy boxes too. When you're having two different buy boxes, what's your let's just say like one perfect deal from each of them came up. Would you have the funds to like get into both deals at that time? Or would you just like have both come across your desk? And is there like one buy box that you're favoring right now? Like what's your protocol with that? I think Amelia and I are of the opinion that if it's a good enough deal, you'll find the money. You'll find a partner, you'll find a hard money lender, a private money lender, whatever. So I wouldn't be worried about it. I would put in the work to find that money. Cause like I said, that eight unit that I bought, I didn't have the money, but I found it. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Amelia? Yeah. I would say that's why it's so important to be talking about like what you're doing, like either start Instagram or be sharing with your friends and family. So that way, when you run out of your own money, which Grace and I have both run into, you have resources to be able to draw from people that are looking for an opportunity to invest that you can call on to lend you money or partner with you. Gotcha. Okay. And I also like too that you said your buy box can kind of evolve over time. Like maybe on your first deal, you have the time to get a fixer upper. And by the time that's up and running and you're managing that one, you need turnkey from here on out. So I don't think any of this has to be set in stone, but I just, I loved, I've never heard of a buy box before. And I just love this whole concept of getting so crystal clear on what you want for your own sake and to tell other people what to look for you. Thank you guys so much. This was so much info. I highly recommend anyone listening. If you just want to know more about real estate investing in general, outside of short-term rental, please go check out their podcast. I listen to it every single week. I love your guys' content. It's the Women Invest in Real Estate podcast, and I'll link it below. Grace and Amelia, any parting words you guys want to leave us with today? 
I would say when you make that buy box and you find that deal, go for it. It's going to be scary, but go for it. And thank you for having us. Yeah, I would just say thank you so much for having us. And we are nothing special and we've managed to grow pretty good portfolios. So anyone can do it. We're just small town girls from Iowa. So find a deal and move forward. Actually, before we sign off, I'd love to know just a quick recap how you guys got started in real estate investing. Yeah, so I actually started investing with a flip. I... (laughs) I partnered with my parents on a flip. I had to convince them for like two years to do this flip with me. Again, this is in Iowa, so I want to share some funny numbers. We bought this four-bedroom, two-bathroom house for $30,000. We put (laughs) about $30,000 into it, and they had a line of credit that they used. And then we sold it for $120,000. So pre-tax, we made about $60,000. We ended up splitting the profit, and I bought a triplex for $78,000 and put 20% down on it. So that's how I got started. I quickly realized during the flip that I wasn't into flipping. It was a lot of DIY. It was taking up a lot of my time. So I think I stumbled across bigger pockets at that point and decided that I was going to be a buy and hold investor. And I just kind of scaled from there. After I bought that first triplex, I was addicted to the cash flow. And yeah, it basically just took off after that. You bought a house for 30, a four bedroom house for $30,000. What yes. year was this? 2019. Oh my God. Yeah. Is that your cheapest house, Amelia? Yes. I've purchased a couple house. Nope. I purchased one house for 28,000, but I've purchased probably like five (laughs) houses for 30,000. But I finally got you beat on my upcoming acquisition for 25,000. It's basically needs torn down, but yeah. It's crazy. And I was a great market for cash flow, but not appreciation like we talked about. So yeah, Grace, how did you get started? Yeah, so I decided I was bored in Iowa one winter, kind of knew a little bit about real estate. So decided to look for a flip opportunity, ended up finding a really cute house that I realized, oh my God, I can qualify for a mortgage. That's crazy. So I bought the house with like 3% down. My boyfriend and my sister moved in. So I was house hacking before I really even knew what it was. And then over the next two years, I put in a lot of work to upgrade it. It was like a 1920s craftsman. And then I ended up selling it at the end of two years, which if you're familiar with any tax law, if you live in a house for the last two or five years, you can sell it tax-free up to a certain percentage. So I got all that tax-free two years later. But after that house, I was like, okay, I can keep doing this. And then my boyfriend and I decided to take on a full gut, a giant house. It was like $80,000. We thought we would... DIY this gut for $30,000 in three months. It took double the time and double the money. (laughs) Yep. But, (laughs) yep. But it ended up appraising for like 185 and we have a renter in there at 1500 and we still have that house. So that was the kickoff point. Oh, I love both of those stories. And like the tying point, like the thing that ties both of those stories together is like it literally was just you guys getting started. I feel like, Grace, you did you even know about that two year tax free law? You just happened to live there two years and then sold it and found this out. Yeah. And then Amelia, like you discovered along the way, I actually don't like flipping, but now I've gotten the itch for investing. Like you you just have to start everybody. That is the moral of the story. It really is. And I will add one more thing is that I was scared crapless. (laughs) I edit myself. (laughs) And I'm still scared every single time I buy a property, you get those like nervous butterflies And that's totally normal. So if you're out there thinking like, I'm just so nervous to buy a property, 
Like, just be confident in your numbers because you're going to be nervous no matter what. Oh, I love that. Okay. The butterflies are okay, you guys. That's healthy. That's That's like a healthy fear to have. Yes, definitely. All right. Thank you both so much. And we'll link every way to connect with you below. Thank you, Natalie. And finally, for this week's Am I the Airbnb Hole? I thought that this one was so perfect for this week coming right after 4th of July. We are now in peak summer season. Everybody's in the pool. Everybody's hanging out in the water. And today's Am I the Airbnb Hole was just hilarious, but also such a good PSA and reminder to any blondes out there. So here's what happened. A host posted on a Facebook group, as always, saying, our current guest says her blonde hair extensions turned green after swimming in our pool. I am aware blonde hair can sometimes turn green after swimming. We sent her a chlorine clearing shampoo, but she says her extensions are ruined and is requesting for us to pay. She's requesting a price of $750 for her extensions. Not sure what to do in this situation. My favorite thing about all of this, first of all, the entitlement here. Like, come on, these hosts were so nice to already just send a chlorine clearing shampoo. I think that that was so polite of them. The entitlement here of this girl. Girl, please, if you can afford $750 to get your hair done, no, no, no. The entitlement here. Like, I just, I, I can't get over it, you guys. I can't get over it. If you can afford $750 to get your hair done, shut up. Shut up and do not ask for a reimbursement, okay? If you've got $750 to spare on this, just shut up. My favorite thing about this was the entire comment section, the entire comment section is all hairstylists <laughs> rushing and saying that this girl was in the wrong. So let's just, let's just run through these. One comment several years ago, I had a group of eight freshly bleached bachelorettes request $5,600 for professional services because their hair turned green. I had a celebrity stylist friend write a letter saying that they can remedy this at home and declare that it wasn't the pool's fault. I never heard from them again after that. Next comment. As a salon owner, I am here to say that that's on her. Period. Next comment. If you have blonde hair, you know damn well chlorine is going to turn your hair green. Tell her to get her $30 of purple shampoo and shove it. Next comment. She doesn't deserve anything. She should have known better. Any blonde knows this. (laughs) Next comment. There's no way in hell you should pay for that. Sorry, but that is fully her fault. All extension brands let you know not to go swimming because it will turn your hair green. Next comment, I have had hair extensions for many years and swim for two years with them. Any person who wears extensions knows what to do for them pre-swimming conditioner as well as treatment to remove chlorine from the hair. The neglect is on the guest. Next comment, she should have known to get her hair wet in the shower slash sink first so it doesn't absorb the pool water. You don't pay that much for blonde and not know how to care for it. Next comment, I have blonde hair and I know that chlorine turns hair green. This is why I do not go underwater in pools. That was her choice to do that. Next comment. I have platinum extensions. It's a well-known rule that you do not go in pools with bleached hair. Even saltwater pools aren't great, TBH. That's 100% on her. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we, we can keep going, you guys. It was... Here, let's just throw in a few more. Next comment. Oh, no, no, no. She knew what she was doing when swimming in the pool. It is not your responsibility to make sure her fake hair doesn't change colors. Tell her how you clean your pool, and if that is a problem, then maybe she shouldn't be swimming with blonde hair. 
Next comment, your guest sounds very entitled. If I have any issue that is not universally known, i.e. my hair needing special treatment, the onus is on me to take precautions. Next comment, uh, no, I am a hairstylist and the number one rule is to keep your blonde out of chlorine. I would not refund anything. Like others said, she may need a new set and was trying to get one over. I just love literally this entire comment section. There was over 600 comments on this and it was all hairdressers just running to this host defense and saying, you did nothing wrong. This girl should have known. I love this. You guys, I... I swear the hairdressers I've known in my life are the baddest bitches out there who will not put up with this. And I just, I love to see it. Like, th this was so satisfying for me. I have blonde hair. I've never had extensions. And so I have had hair turned slightly green in the water. I do know that it is worse with extensions. But yeah, like any, I, I just, I know how anytime I've gotten my hair drawn, my hairdressers have been so good with the education and telling me like use purple shampoo once a week no more than that use this don't use this do not get your hair colored if you've had a relaxer like I'm not even a hairstylist and I know these rules because I know how well hairstylists educate their clients and this comment section 600 plus angry hairstylists defending this host so confirmed it loved this love to see it this girl honestly probably just had this ragged ratchet set and just wanted to get new extensions and thought that this was her chance to get a free $750 set of extensions. Not around here, sis, okay? Go pay for your own extensions, okay? Do not put that on some host. You had a good time in her pool. You know you did. Do not put that on her. You are the Airbnb hole. I love that this host was able to turn to Facebook and actually got solid answers. So many times the comments on these Facebook groups are so rude and hateful. This was just all support all the way. I'd love to see it. And with that, it is now checkout time. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you back here next week. Lastly, as Airbnb hosts, we all can appreciate a good five-star review. So you already know a great review on this podcast would mean so much to me. Please subscribe, review, share, and connect with me in the show notes below. Bye!